0: Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items.
1: It's Wednesday, July 28th. John, what do you want to talk about today?
0: Bloomberg reports that members of a congressional panel urged U.S. corporations to pull their sponsorship of the 2022 Winter Olympics, unless the Games are moved out of Beijing. So I want to get into that. I also want to talk about another China story, Investors are scared that the CCP is going to come down hard on certain industries like healthcare, real estate, and education. And I want to get your take on that. How about you?
1: Big tech had a monster quarter, and we're going to discuss the implications, which are not necessarily all good. I also want to talk to you about a column you wrote called Four Illusions that explains how you think Donald Trump could win the 2024 election.
0: Indeed. All right, let's start with two science and tech headlines, and then we'll get to the items.
1: First, mixing and matching your vaccines may not be such a bad idea. No one should try to fool the nurse administering their shots, but a South Korean study has found that getting one shot of AstraZeneca and a second shot of Pfizer leads to much greater antibody levels. That's compared with sticking to AstraZeneca alone. The study was conducted on a few hundred medical workers. Overall, it showed that the combo resulted in antibody levels that were about equal to getting two Pfizer shots. In other words, at least as far as antibodies are concerned, it seems that AstraZeneca gets a serious boost What do you think this means for possible booster shots in the future?
0: I think they got to do the studies, right? I mean, you got to do one Moderna, one Astra, one Astra, one Moderna and see what the best combo is. And then, of course, you have to find out what the best booster is. But it's exciting because the greater the vaccination, the better it is for everyone. So, Yep.
1: Next, quantum computing startup PsiQuantum has raised a Series D round worth $450 million. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Palo Alto-based company plans to use particles of light to store information in the complex quantum state, which gives quantum computing its name. The sector is heating up. Globally, according to data from the research firm PitchBook, quantum computing companies raised $288 million in 2019 and then roughly $780 million in 2020, With this latest massive investment led by BlackRock, 2021 is already getting close to matching that. According to the journal, SciQuantum says it has paying customers in healthcare and transportation. Those clients are curious to find use cases for the technology. John, I know you follow the quantum computing beat very closely. Do you think investors will be rewarded for jumping in?
0: Uh, we hope so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. We we want quantum computing to work because it speeds everything up exponentially, right? Discovery mm-hmm. and scientific experimentation and tracking neurons. Quantum computing enables a whole nother level of uh, science and discovery. So we're all for it. I suspect that there will be bigger companies, maybe Apple, maybe Facebook, whatever, that if psi quantum has continued success in developing its capability that it will command an enormous acquisition price.
1: That's exciting on the Quantum Beat. Let's move on to the news items.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back.
1: All right, let's start with the Olympics. So the Summer Olympics are happening right now, but let's take a minute to discuss the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing. On Tuesday, the Congressional Executive Commission on China questioned Olympic corporate sponsors like Coca-Cola, Visa, and Airbnb. Here's an exchange between Senator Tom Cotton and Paul Lally, the global head of human rights at Coca-Cola.
0: Do you believe that the Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide against the Uyghur people?
1: We're aware of the reports of the State Department on this issue as well as other departments uh, of the U.S. government. We respect those reports. They continue to inform our program, as do reports from other from civil
0: society. Uh, so we see what I'm talking about. about uh, under questioning from Senator Merkley and Representative McGovern and Representative Chris Smith, every single one of you refused to say a single word by all appearances that will cost you one bit of market share inside of mainland China.
1: John, because of its apartheid policies, South Africa was banned from participating in the Olympics for over 20 years. So there is a precedent here. Do you think this movement to boycott the Beijing Olympics will gather steam? Or was this just a congressional panel that makes news for one day and then gets forgotten?
0: Oh, no, I think this is uh, this is going to build and build and build. It's a terrific issue for aspiring presidential candidates like Tom Cotton. And it's also a good issue for the Democrats to exhibit how tough they are on China. And then I think as we learn more and more about uh, what's actually happening in China, European allies and Asian allies will say, this is a way to really push back.
1: So can you talk about the, co- the composition of this Congressional Executive Committee? Do they have any enforcement mechanism against these companies no. whatsoever? None. No, they okay. don't. So it's purely reputational. Name them and shame them.
0: Yeah. And it seems to me the easiest way out for them is not available, right? Because what they really want is access to the Chinese market because you have a billion consumers there. But if they stand fast and say, no, 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 we're going to overlook, you know, all these human rights abuses. We're going to overlook the possibility that the virus actually came from a lab in Wuhan and we're going to sponsor these Olympic Games. That's going to put them crosswise with an American political class that's united on the issue of China, or at least mm-hmm. in sync,
1: so John, what's the word? Will any corporations actually renege on their inked deals to sponsor the Beijing Olympics?
0: I think it's possible, actually, I really do you do. think it's
1: a case where it's only it only takes one and then there'll and then there'll be a cascade, yes. okay, yes,
0: yeah, somebody has to go first, but I do think that This is going to become part and parcel of the diplomatic face-off between the U.S., its allies, its allies in Asia, uh, and the Chinese. And Mm -hmm. there's no reason that you can't move the Olympics to Norway. They've done it Mm -hmm. before. They do it well. They have more money than God, so it's not a problem. And the alternate Olympics... Would presumably reach an equally large audience, so I don't know I yes, I do think so
1: do you think that there will be any longer term changes for Olympic sponsorships writ large? I mean is it more yeah. trouble than it's worth for a lot of these companies?
0: Oh, I think so I, absolutely yeah. i I think that whole apparatus with NBC spending billions of dollars to carry the Olympics and all these huge advertisers sponsoring and so on and so forth I think that that edifice is going to fall down in the next, uh, this decade.
1: Yeah. To be replaced by anything else? I mean, is there a more attractive forum for exposure that these companies are are looking at?
0: I mean, there will be the Olympics, obviously. I just think that the finances of it just don't work anymore. It's too much trouble and Mm -hmm. it's too expensive. And, you know, what is the return that great compared to the World Cup or the Euro Cup? It seems to me that those soccer ones especially, those are, you know, you know exactly what you're getting. You know exactly who the audience is. And it would seem to me if I were a media buyer, that's where I would be taking my clients. I wouldn't want them bundled up in controversial venues and the IOC and all that stuff. Well,
1: that'll be interesting to watch and see if corporate America comes around.
0: Yeah. One to watch, as we say here. At News yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, comply or explain.
0: Exactly. Next up, Apple, Google, and Microsoft reported massive earnings for the second quarter of this year. Google's parent, known as Alphabet, reported a revenue bump of 62%. Apple had a 36% increase. Every part of its businesses grew. And Microsoft delivered its strongest revenue growth since 2008 at 21%. In an article over at a tech site called The Information... Martin Peers argues that these eye-catching numbers could give critics of big tech more ammo to break them up. He also says this kind of growth can't last long. What do we make of this, Rebecca? And do you agree with Martin, uh, Martin's take on it? Yes. Short answer is yes.
1: I mean, what I'd be very interested to see is the Q3 report from Apple so that we get a sense of what their vulnerability to supply chain constraints. I mean, there's a chip shortage going on all over the world. I think of all those major tech companies, I think Apple probably has the highest profile vulnerability to the semiconductor supply chain as it, you know, attempts to roll out its new iPhone. You know, that could potentially put the, the spanner in the works for big tech. Again, Martin Pierce also raises the point that, you know, it's, Hard to argue that big tech shouldn't be broken up when they continue to crush it on earnings quarter after quarter.
0: It's a blowout, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable numbers.
1: Yeah, I don't know what else you can really say about it. I mean, it's a blowout quarter. I think that what could rain on this parade, I mean, higher interest rates, if you have sort of sector rotation due to an abrupt or sooner than anticipated change in Fed rate policy, that could take the air out of a lot of tech stocks because they've been the high flyers for the past several years. And certainly that's accelerated under COVID as well as any vulnerabilities to supply chain disruptions in in the semiconductor industry specifically. It's hard to see how any tech company could really be immune to that, so to speak.
0: All right, shall we move on?
1: Let us move on.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Welcome back to News Items. Chinese President Xi Jinping wants to tackle the country's high cost of living, and that means the healthcare, real estate, and education industries have targets on their backs. We're now seeing a sell-off in the Chinese health care sector as investors rush to get out before an expected regulatory crackdown from the Chinese Communist Party. Alan Song, the founder of private equity firm Harvest Capital, was quoted in Reuters as saying, Chinese entrepreneurs and investors must understand that the age of reckless capital expansion is over. A new era that prioritizes fairness over efficiency has begun. Rebecca, how worried should investors be, and what do you make of President Xi's attempts to re-engineer the Chinese economy?
1: To re-engineer the Chinese re-engineer.
0: economy. Re-engineer.
1: I mean, this idea that the Chinese Communist Party is going to be hands-on, it's like, well, duh. <laughs> I, mean, <Right. laughs> I mean, what, are they going to be hands-off? I mean, this is not the first time they've come, right? One, booms and busts are bad for business, bad for the business of the Chinese Communist Party, period, right? right? Period. Booms yep. and busts create political vulnerabilities for them. Secondly, in the vein of the Chinese government and the ruling party thinking in terms of centuries as opposed to... U.S. election cycles or certainly corporate quarters, they're taking a longer term view of the demographic crisis that is facing China. Anything that prevents Chinese families from being willing to have another kid or feeling they can afford it, any impediment to population growth is going to be looked at long and hard. By the authorities,
0: I did an interview yesterday with Diana Shoyliva. She's the head of an economic research group and has been covering China forever. Mm-hmm. She was talking about the real estate piece, and she said, "You know, the way that Chinese people build wealth is through real estate. There, there are no, yeah. you know, there's no real market that they can access. I mean, there is, but the way that the vast majority of Chinese build wealth is through owning real estate assets, and that." Runs directly into President Xi's directive, which is that your house is not an investment, it's a home. And so profiting from the increase in value of that is not what the Chinese Communist yeah. Party wants to see. But that's a pretty direct, you know, head to head confrontation there, yeah. given that that's the way most people build wealth. And Xi says that's not the way you're going to build wealth anymore. That creates its own dynamic, but Xi will win, so.
1: Yeah, well, of course, she will win no matter what Xi's position is going to be, right? I mean, but is this as much about, you know, locking horns with a popular desire to build wealth through real estate appreciation as opposed to curbing speculation? I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I think you can have individuals who invest in a home for the long term, living in the house, as well as anticipating some appreciation in the value of that home that may see them through their retirement years when they downsize, for example. I don't know. I assume that's the, the typical trajectory of things in, in China as elsewhere, as opposed to house flipping on borrowed money that right. is you know, poorly documented and not well right. scrutinized.
0: The obvious point is that mm-hmm. Xi is asserting the Communist Party of China dominance over everything, right? Um, If you think that you can make outsized profits in the education market, think again, we're shutting that down. Mm -hmm. If you think you can make outsized profits or speculate in the real estate market, think again, we're shutting that action down.
1: When you talk about market dichotomies, traders, let's say, people who take a traderly view of the markets day to day or week to week, it's either risk on or it's flight to safety. The markets operate somewhere in that continuance. And here, when you look at the Chinese markets, I think that dichotomy is, you know, growth versus control. And I think we're seeing a shift certainly in those sectors toward control. And at the end of the day, maybe control is always going to win when you talk about the Chinese Communist Party or the way that companies are structured in that market. Right.
0: I mean, the point of the Chinese government is to ensure the continued success of the Chinese government. So anything that gets in its way will be steamrolled.
1: That's right. All right. Shall we move on? (laughs) Returning to U.S. shores. So, John, on Monday, Real Clear Politics linked to a column you published on Medium. The headline was Four Illusions. And the main takeaway you wrote is that you think Donald Trump has a decent shot at winning the 2024 presidential election, especially and specifically if inflation takes off. Can you break that down for us?
0: Yeah. So the four illusions are Biden is not too old. Second is that Vice President Harris is ready for prime time, so to speak. Mm -hmm. The third is that Trump is done, that he's finished. And the fourth is that Trump, even if he's not done, he can't win. So I I went through them one by one. Mm -hmm. The point I made about Biden is that if you looked at Biden as vice president, he seems as vigorous and as sharp at 66 as he does at 74 that has clearly changed. And one of the weirdest things about the press coverage of the Biden administration is that for the most part in the, quote, mainstream media, the subject of Biden's age is sort of alighted at every turn when all over the country, it's all they're talking about, right? It's like, wow, this guy's really old. So that's a disconnect. So then the question is, okay, well, Maybe Kamala Harris, you know, would step in. She's the vice president. Mm -hmm. You know, the view from everybody who covers politics is that, at least so far, she hasn't sort of stepped up to the level that people would think about her as president. That may be unfair. It may be that over time people will come to think of her that way. But at the moment, they, quote, don't think she's ready for prime time or she needs to step up her game or whatever the code is used to describe it. That then leads us to a question which is, well, everybody knows that Trump lost and he's finished and so on and so forth. That is nonsense. I mean, Trump maintains incredible loyalty from Republican primary voters and caucus attenders. He is by far the dominant figure in the Republican Party by orders of magnitude. So can Trump win against an aged Biden or a presumably not quite ready for primetime Kamala Harris? Is it possible for Trump to win? And the answer in the sort of referendum sense is that 52% of the country, probably maybe 53% of the country, would, you know, eat brass tacks to vote against Donald Trump. So if the issue is Donald Trump, Trump will lose, But if inflation takes hold and becomes sort of a Jimmy Carter-era crisis, then inflation is the issue, and I would think that the 2024 election would look a lot like the 1980 election.
1: Do you think that it was a tactical error on the part of the administration to make Kamala Harris sort of the face of the administration's policy on immigration?
0: Well, they didn't want Biden to be the face of it, so they looked around and said, "Okay, mm-hmm. we'll make Kamala the face of it." I thought it was punitive, really. Mm-hmm. You could have the relevant cabinet members take the lead on it. And they bungled the immigration issue, you know, from the get-go, but they did her I think serious damage by putting her there so early and so prominently in an issue that, you know, is really fraught. If you're thinking about the future of the Democratic Party and sort of Mm -hmm. secession, if Biden is not going to run for a second term, you know, your job is to make Kamala Harris look good. It's not to throw her into the briar patch of uh, immigration crisis and say, well, it's it's not our problem, it's her problem. Mm -hmm. The political management of Kamala Harris has been horrific. And I think quite spiteful, actually. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Bidens ever got over the fact that she swatted Biden in one of those Democratic presidential debates. I think that lingers and has lingered. And she's what they have. There's no bench. So the job of the Democratic Party is to make Kamala Harris look good, not to make her look hapless.
1: Okay. So, John, talk to me What about what happened in Texas yesterday evening in the runoff election, Republican versus Republican, where State Representative Jake Elzey won over Susan Wright, who was endorsed by Trump. What does that mean for 2024?
0: The first thing is how excited everybody is in the press about the fact that the Trump-endorsed candidate lost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the attempt, the sort of uh, extrapolation from the election into Trump is losing his grip, Trump is on the decline, a lot of wishful thinking about the uh, coming demise of Donald Trump. The election itself, two Republicans, one against the other, right had the support of Trump, and indeed the Trump pack bought some advertising at the end because they were concerned that she would lose and Mm -hmm. that the press would say, you know, Trump's endorsement wasn't what it used to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And LZ1, look at the facts of the matter. In 2018, roughly 200, I'm not quite sure this is true, but I think 256,000 people voted in the congressional general election in Texas's 6th Congressional District, so Mm -hmm. 256,000 people. Yesterday, Mm -hmm. just over 40,000 people voted in the 6th Congressional District election, so Mm -hmm. one-sixth the number of voters. I don't think there's a larger lesson to be learned here. I do think that if the Republicans are going to get rid of Mm Trump— this, I think, is the key point.
1: Okay. If,
0: if the Republicans are going to push Trump aside, they have to beat him in Republican primaries in 2022. Mm-hmm. In Ohio, the 16th Congressional District, there's a guy named Tony Gonzalez, who's an incumbent, uh, Republican incumbent. He voted for Trump's impeachment last January. Trump has set out to destroy him. If Gonzalez wins— running into the headwind of Trump's endorsement, then Trump's diminished. And obviously, the big one that everybody will be watching is in Wyoming, Liz Cheney is diametrically opposed to Mm -hmm. former President Trump. He eventually will endorse one candidate, Mm -hmm. and that will probably clear the mega field of candidates, if you will. If Liz Cheney wins that congressional seat, then Trump is truly diminished. So the opportunity for Republicans who want to get rid of Trump is to win primaries in 2022. But if Trump endorsed candidates win, then Trump is basically unstoppable for the GOP nomination.
1: Well, on that note. On that happy (laughs) note. Four Illusions went out to News Items subscribers first. So check it out on News Items. You can find it at newsitems.substack.com or on Medium searching uh, John Ellis Four Illusions.
0: And while you're searching the web, you should definitely go to Rebecca's website, which is called investableuniverse.com. It covers the global market of things, and it is terrific.
1: News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground.
0: We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Diana Shorlova the founder of Enodo Economics. We'll be talking about China. We'll see you then.